Separation Sunday, the second record was going to come out, and we wanted to, we'd booked the Bowery Ballroom for the record release. And I was like, you know, guys, we have to like get, we have to ask for huge guest lists. We have to get everyone from our work to come. It's going to look terrible. Like we've sold out the Mercury Lounge, but that's, the Bowery Ballroom's huge. This is, And then like the Village Voice came out, and we were on the cover and like it sold out that day. And I was like, I went from freaking out that no one was going to come to like... Turning people away at the guest room. Yeah, it's like saying like, you can't be on the guest list anymore. Um, I mean, that was a really exciting time. I've been trying to get people to call me Freddy Knuckles. People keep calling me Right Said Fred. And it's hard to keep trying when half your friends are dying. It's hard to hold it steady when half your friends are dead already. Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the Talkhouse Music Podcast. Here at the Talkhouse, we pair notable musicians for thoughtful, unmoderated conversations and release new talks each week. Recent episodes have included Pavement Stephen Malkmus with Holy Sons E. Malemos and the Flaming Lips Wayne Coyne with legendary hip-hop producer Prince Paul. Check out these and all of our past episodes and subscribe to get new ones on Stitcher or iTunes. Today's guests are old friends and collaborators Craig Finn and Sid Butler in an episode recorded backstage at Late Night with Seth Meyers. Craig Finn fronted Twin Cities bar rockers Lifter Puller before moving to New York City and finding fame leading the hold steady. He's also released a pair of solo albums and is about to drop his third, We All Want the Same Things, next month. Sid Butler currently plays bass in Late Night with Seth Meyers' house band, but he's worn a couple of different hats over the years. On top of playing bass in the beloved post-punk group La Savi Fav, Butler founded French Kiss Records, who have released bands like Local Natives, The Drums, and Passion Pit. French Kiss also put out The Hold Steady's first two albums, 2004's Almost Killed Me, and the next year's Separation Sunday. To mark the deluxe reissue release of those LPs, Butler and Finn sat down for a talkhouse talk. Their chat begins with a look behind the scenes of the Seth Meyers house band's process, and then moves into a funny and poignant recollection of the early Hold Steady years. It also takes in Butler's high school straight edge band, the pluses and minuses of smartphones for musicians, and the time Finn and Butler's bands were playing together, and the one and only Joe Strummer showed up to catch the gig, and enthusiastically shout at the performers. Check it out. I guess he didn't even have to die, but the first four looks so nice. And I wanted five. And should we identify ourselves? I'm I'm Craig Finn. I'm Sid Butler. And um, I've known Sid for well since I think 1999. Um, but we're I guess to set the scene, we're here in the rehearsal room of the HE band at the Seth Meyer show where Sid is a band member and I am uh, fortunate enough to be guesting this week which has been a lot of fun um, but I guess maybe a cool way to start this would be to talk about how this part works we're sitting in the rehearsal room which is where the day begins and uh, why don't, can you explain what happens during a day here happily uh, so the show's been on for almost three years now, three years in February. At this day, December 21st, we've done 466 shows. And Fred Armisen put the band together very quickly. It happened about uh, over a two-week period of time. And 
the rumor is, or the history is, it's been foggy now, but long story short, he was asked to put an indie band together for the show. So he asked me and Seth Jabor and Eli Janney to help him. And we hired a drummer named Kim. And that was the band. And over the course of three years, it's changed a bunch. But long story short, when we first started playing, we would write songs. It takes about eight hours to write the five or nine songs for the day. And now we've gotten it down to shorthand. So we come in about 12.30 and crank out. Today we did one, two, three, four. We did seven pieces of music in about an hour and a half. Yeah. So now we do it much faster and it's all shorthand. Right. But and and now the, the music you're creating is uh, every day. Now I'm guessing this day, so we're going to do one of my songs. What would happen in that slot otherwise? Would it just be an original composition? Yeah, so we'd have to write an original composition for that day. The show doesn't like us to repeat songs. Right. So we have to, I think we have 3,000 pieces of music at this point. And like for, you know, for my week, it was, you know, one cover slash composition. You know, in my case, we did a Hold Steady song or a Lifter Puller song on Monday, a Hold Steady song yesterday, and then we're doing uh, one of my solo things today, but the rest is original, which is, uh, I can say it's very interesting to watch both the creative process and, and, uh, and then when you get out on stage, how it makes sense, you know, like like it's like most of these pieces have two parts, right? And they, and they toggle back. And I guess Eli is saying change or Fred is saying change? When Fred is not here, Eli is the director. And he's the one that's in charge of telling us in our ears to change, to keep things going. And sometimes it's a little counterintuitive because as an audience member, you might think that we should change. Or when we have these new drummers, they want to change because we've done a part A for a normal amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then we extend it or we play part B for a long period of time or a short period of time. And that always throws people when they come and join us. But we've learned to trust each other. I think that's how this has become such a successful, quote, band. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly it's able to communicate quickly, and, and ideas seem like I mean, it, when when you guys are in here watching you put it in, and an idea can come from literally anything. I mean, including a word um, or a or a you know a joke or a, just two notes. Yeah, I think that's what, going back to I, even having you here for the week. There's just an intrinsic amount of trust and history and vernacular that we all have. So. You know, yesterday I was like, "Hey, Fred, play a stereo lab beat," yeah. and then instantly, as if someone hit a magic button, everyone starts playing their <laughs> version of a stereo lab song that happens to be in the same key, in the same yeah. tempo. And then, hey, let's play a garage song. Boom! There's the garage song. Yeah, there's a there's a you know like the stereo lab song is funny because I think like. It, everyone kind of perked up because I think probably everyone in the room is a Stereo Lab fan, and you and you sort of have an idea of what that song sounds like before anyone plays one note, you know, and yeah. what the tones are and how f- quickly it moves or not quickly, and um, it was cool. It was that was really a really good one. It was also the one yesterday we did where I basically ripped off a Fugazi Joe Lally bassline, but we were so conscious that it sounded so much like a Fugazi bassline that then Seth, the guitar player, started writing country riffs over it, and then it sort of became this new, weird, hybrid, kind of this weird, uh, weird song yeah. that we used. But it, it happens a lot, or going back to the point about a joke, 
we all have these quick memories of things. Right? Having Fred here is great, but or a story like, hey, it's so great to have someone here from you know playing with David Bowie to playing with Pearl Jam to playing with the Chili Peppers, and everyone always tells a tour story. It's nice to have all these musicians that have been on tour and have a history and a legacy. And we always get so excited about what their life was like in the early days versus, you know, what was it like being in the Chili Peppers early in, during the Chili Peppers now? What was it like, you know, talking to Abel Boreal Jr.? You know, he's been playing with Paul McCartney longer than the Beatles were around. Wow. So you, you get to hear these stories or David Lovering from the Pixies does magic tricks before each episode. So there was always this nice... Yeah. You know, you get to know these people and their and their connection to their bands that you've grown up worshiping and loving and connecting to. Sure, sure. Well, thinking about that, so you know, the, just going around the room, Fred Armisen um, uh, is obviously known for for his television career, but I met him in 1993 as a member of the band Trenchmouth. I met you in '99, and Seth as as members of the band Le Savi Fav. Eli was in Girls Against Boys, um, who are a band I was mad about uh, through the '90s, and and uh, and Mary was in Helium and X Hex and um, Wild Flag, um, and you know I'm I'm in Lifter Puller, but I, I guess backing backing up um, when you look at like what's happened, how you got here from wherever it was started, does it feel like linear? Or I guess you started in um, D.C. And before Les Savi Five, you were in bands in high school probably? Yeah, I was in bands in high school. I was in a straight-edge band, of course. What was that called? Strength in Numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have strength in there. I know. There's a chain of strength, strength in numbers. I know, and, and I was the vocalist, and I can't sing in notes, so that was a short-lived <laughs> career. <laughs> were um, you actually straight-edge? Yeah, I was straight-edge. Okay. Um, because that's not always a requirement to be in a straight edge. No, band. yeah, no, I, um, I, I became straight edge to be in the band. Uh, but it was interesting, and yeah, that lasted about a month and a half. And then you had, were you in? Was there another like Desiderata? Yeah, I was in a band with Amanda Mackay um, called Desiderata. Yeah, and that was sort of my band that life was serious, and we took it seriously, and we went on tour, and we put out a seven inch, and we made T-shirts and flyers, and played at benefit shows, and. Was it a Fugazi-esque band? I think every band at the time of that era was either a rip-off Right to Spring band or a rip-off Fugazi band. It was and, a DC-sounding style know, band. Every guitarist wanted a Marshall half-stack. Yeah. Every bass player just recycled that SVT. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I bought Andy Rappaport's bass, his SVT from King Face. So there was sort of this the, the stuff that kept being passed on. Yeah. And it was very supportive, obviously, an amazing scene, amazing time. But yeah, it was, that's where I started. And, mm-hmm. and to answer your question about was this linear, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> well, if, if you had asked me if I was going to be playing bass in a late night TV show with a bunch of my best friends that I've known <laughs> my whole life, I would think that, you know, 20 years ago, you'd be on crack. But that's sort of what I mean about linear. I mean, it's like you didn't, at any point, there's been so many things in between. I mean, Les Avi Fav's been a constant, but you started a record label, French Kiss, and which has had some, you know, bands, myself and, you know, Hold Steady was on it, Passion Pit, Local Natives. I mean, there's some really big records came out on that. And um, and then last night you said you, you still have a title, The Orchard? Yeah, so I'm still... Uh 
I'm still with the Orchard. You know, I, the, the thing with the Orchard, they've been sort of part of my family, my music family for a long time, and super supportive of French Kiss for back in the when you worked at the Digital mm-hmm. Club Network and brought us into the Orchard. It's such a yeah. funny small circle. Uh, very quickly, when digital music started to become a thing, Craig worked at the Orchard a well, called yeah Digital Club Network, and then then the Orchard, yeah, the Orchard. So he was A and R for the Digital Club Network and brought French Kiss in to. Yeah, that system, and then a couple of years ago, so every three years, my contract with the Orchard would come up, and every three years, I'd have to negotiate a new contract. So finally, about a year and a half ago, I sold the assets to the Orchard, uh-huh. um, and then one of the benefits was that they would be helping me run the day to day while I was on Seth Meyers. Sure, and then I guess my point is, it seems like none of it was like you didn't at any point you didn't say like what I gotta do now is get on a television show it's just sort of these things kept rolling right yeah it you know it. my grandfather used to say the harder you work the luckier you get yeah and then when I was in college my professor kept saying just keep showing up <laughs> you know it's gonna be cold you might have, it might get you might get rained on but just keep showing up and I felt like those two things should be tattooed on my back or somehow uh, but I just kept showing up yeah, and you, we had this conversation a bit last night that the people who didn't show up have sort of fell by the wayside, and here we are, sort of surviving at the top of this mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I always feel like with the, the hold steady, and, and especially looking back to Lifter Puller, my first band, we played a lot of shows that were, you know, had an attendance of like eight people, and I can't tell you how many times I'm on tour with the hold steady, and some guy will be like. Yeah, I saw Lifter Puller in uh, you know, uh, St. Louis, and in '98, and you'll be like, well, there, there was four people there. He's like, yeah, I was one of them. Yeah, I was like, you should have said hi. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it would have been nice if you would have said hello. Um, but it, you think sometimes when you think you're not making a difference, you're actually planting a seed to something, and it's hard to tell sometimes, and it's hard to remind yourself, but it's. It's there, and it makes you feel good that like that. I'm glad I wasn't not sure. That, that playing that show in San, uh, you know, St. Louis was a good idea, right? But now you're like, I'm glad we did that. Yeah, I always tell the young bands that I work with on French Kiss that the shows that you remember most are the shows with eight people in St. Louis. It's the shows where you play in front of two thousand people that you don't remember. Yeah, and I don't know how many times, you know, we stayed at someone's house or had to hustle to, you know, eat or whatever the situation was. The adrenaline rush was there in the beginning, and when you get paid. It, bands sort of start to fall apart because they're missing that urgency of their music. And I just remember, you know, going back to Minneapolis when Girls Against Boys bring it even keep circling back. Girls Against Boys brought La Salle 5 out on tour with them. We played at First Avenue and you were one of the nine people there with the show. <laughs> and we hung out and put out a record and then we put out a record and here we are, you know, 20 yeah. years later. It's just, It's such a weird, serendipitous karmic universal connection the first i think like the first time i mean speaking of a karmic connection the first time we ever played a show together lay five came to minneapolis and it was the lifter puller uh was right about to put out fiestas and fiascos we played the show or no you guys played first and then right as we went on word came in the back that joe strummer was in the room yeah and i thought joe strummer is going to have a drink and leave. But next thing I know, they're like, and someone wants to meet you guys. And Joe Strummer hung out that night. Um, he'd, you know, he'd taken drink. Um, 
but he hung out for quite a while after the show. And it was really a spectacular, I mean, he's like my all-time hero. Um, I think we all were just like, I can't believe this is happening. And not only that, that he's hanging out for a long time. And I remember in the vein, we, then we then we played Chicago the next day. And I remember driving down to, we played Shubas the next day and driving down to Chicago and we're into Wisconsin. And Dan said, the drummer of Ultra Polar said, you know, I'm really excited about this show tonight. I love playing in Chicago, but it's probably not going to be as good as last <laughs> night. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's those things that you can't, uh, plan for that I think sometimes are the most crazy. And that was, I mean, I, I think I still have pictures of that on my computer. Uh, but yeah, my face was in every picture was just joy <laughs> and shock. Yeah. And I remember two things he said that night. One was he sort of yelled out into the crowd, it's Lift or Puller's world and we're just a part of it. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing he said that in the early days of the clash, they would have an extra mic on stage for people that just wanted to get up on stage and vent and yell because <laughs> people were so stressed and so angry that they would just, while they were playing, they'd just go up and say, ah, then jump off. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just love the idea of that, like while the Clash are playing, you know, Paul Simon and, you know, <laughs> all these people doing their cool vibe, their, this awesome music, and then some fucking drunk knucklehead being like, Fuck the queen and yeah. you know, jumping off stage. I mean, I think think maybe like that's something to bring back. I'm I'm just thinking of like, you know, and we have this election that happened, and like, do you think we're due for like a clash or a fugazi or something? I mean, is that and, and rock doesn't seem like it holds the same cachet anymore. But the idea of like, I mean, I never saw the clash, but I saw the like you probably saw Fugazi a lot. And there was something about that band that um it got people in a room feeling a certain way. And a, I'm not sure I know another band that did that and, and had sort of politics involved in it. Do you think we could see that again? I, I think we will. I, the, the one sort of caveat about this election is that art will be good again. I think there was been a drought. I feel like when Reagan was president, when Bush was president, there was sort of this voice that people had. They were angry. They were intelligent about it and created great art. And for the past eight years, we've had, you know, a president who's taken us out of a terrible recession. Um, he's changed the economy. He's done a lot of great things, whether you like it or not. And now we're back to an angry, divided state. And I think people on both sides will make really cool things, whether they like it or not. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly one theory. I'm not sure. I, I kind of believe art's been good. And I, I will we'll remain to see what it changes. But I do think there's... I still think there's a power um, in getting people in a room that because it's so easy to stay home, I say this at my shows all the time, that it's so easy to stay home that there might be like a renewed power of, if Fugazi was paid no more than $5 to get in the show, what if this next band was turn off your phone? Right. We're all going into a room together. I mean, like that would be a revolutionary act and would you know, maybe um, at least create some conversation or create thought that that's interesting. Um, and I, I wonder if I wonder if there's, you know, I, something like the Clash or Fugazi. There's something that's just really uh, grassroots about it. I wonder if there's ever something like that down the pike, or 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 it looks different. Maybe it looks different. Well, I think there are bands out there. I mean, even against me, you know, they have a new record out and they're on tour, and 
you know, Laura Grace has sort of gone through this transition and, and she's very political. She mm-hmm. wrote this great book. Yeah. Uh, she has a lot to say. So I feel like there's a, a movement to bring an understanding of, of different lifestyles, especially now when people are so against certain lifestyles. But yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, going back to your show the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, the whole study show, one of the things that I remarked on was that there were no phones. People weren't, they were totally present in your show. And the last time I saw that was in London when I saw Savages. Like everyone was present, wanted to pay attention, wanted yeah. to be connected to music. Yeah. I, I, that was, I, you said that last night and I was like, yeah, you know what? I didn't have phones in my face that whole, like all weekend. Like it was, it was really nice. People seemed to be like, I'm here. And I do think like, we're also entering this age of, I mean, I know like when I first got an iPhone, it was like, oh, I'm watching this cool band. I should film a little. And then you're like, well, you get home and I'm like, well, who's it going to show it to? Like Angie doesn't want to see it, you know? So like I can either watch it again or I could just delete it off my phone. But I feel like everyone probably went through that and was like, there's only so much, of the, you need an audit, you know, like like you could put it on YouTube, I guess, but who who really wants to see it? Yeah, I started doing, I just started uh, voice memoing the shows because I wanted to hear the song or hear, remember the moment, but I wanted to stay present. Oh, so I just cool. like voice memo, oh, this is my favorite song, voice memo it, get a reference of the recording. I mean, clearly I'm not going to sell it or send yeah. it to anyone, but I wanted to go back and be like, oh, this is their version of my favorite song. Yeah. But that was, a, it's easier for me to swallow than, yeah, it's, and it, oh, it never looks good because on the screen, it, it just doesn't, it never comes out. It's funny that you wanted to. The, the voice memo app on your phone is like, it's like the most useful thing on my phone. Like I wrote my whole album on voice memos. I just, you know, like people are like, oh, you do you use GarageBand? It's like, why would I need all that stuff? Yeah. Like I can just hit record, play the song, hit stop, and then I have it. And then, you know, I can show it to whoever needs to see it. Right. It's, uh, and, and you know, all these options, but somehow you, you end up stripping them all away. She said I won't be much for conversation If we go into the rest of this And I never been much for the conservation I kind of dig these awkward silences hey, we, can, I, I, we can bring this up how we met uh, So Craig Finn worked at this company called DCN And we we're in talks and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to start a bar band and keep it really simple. We're not going to go on tour. We just want to put a record out. And we went to a tiny little Mexican hole in the wall called Paquitos. I don't know. You know what? Actually, I have to interrupt. I think we may have negotiated there, but where we signed the contract with French Kiss was at Mariella's Pizza on 3rd Avenue and oh, right. 16th or 15th. But, but Paquitos and Mariella's were like a block away from each yeah. other. So the whole sort of early hold steady days were and also DCN was a couple blocks away yeah yeah they were DCN was in the De La Guarda building so I worked there Chris Newmeyer our friend there was there and, and but yeah we, we did this deal over a handshake in good times and then the record came out and it kind of percolated and people were excited about it but it wasn't until the end of the year where it blew up yeah I mean and, and then the, the record and the funny thing about um not that like we we're sought after, but the I remember thinking like when the Hold Steady started because we had a classic rock sound. It was kind of like maybe a little down the middle compared to a lot of like you know. But I remember like thinking this is actually great marketing because 
French Kiss is, you know, hot, cool label. We're going to come out on that, and people will look at it differently. Like, if it just came out on, you know, a major label or something, people would be like, oh, it's this bar rock band. But if it's bar rock that's coming out and playing in front of Les Savifav, people are like, wait a minute, this is something else, you know? And uh, I think that there was something inherently good in the marketing of just those, just the juxtaposition of right. those things. No, I agree. I, I, I think French Kiss also sort of tongue-in-cheek and people always ask me, you know, what's your secret? I'm like, I just like bands that are good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're bands that do well that are good and they're bands that I like that don't do well to do, you know, but I still think they're awesome. Yeah. yeah. But I it's mean, like the how quickly your trajectory was to how, you know, some bands go on tour for a long time and, and are real grunt guys. And But you guys, it was so fast that, you know, French Kiss was one in a, one person in an intern and it just exploded. <laughs> And I, I just remember when you guys were on the cover of the Village Voice. I think it was the first band in like ten, 10 yeah, years, ten or something, years or yeah. something nuts. And I just remember, I there wasn't enough time in the day for me to handle. I was so excited for you guys, but I couldn't even handle the trajectory of your success. Well, at one point, I remember, and the other part of early Hold Steady lore was home base was Hi Fi, uh, the old Brownies, yeah. and. We'd go there. All, well, Galen worked there, but we'd so obviously it was a uh, you know uh, there was a benefits to that. But we'd go all, all the time, and I remember like all of us. I think Amy was there, and Chris White was there, and we all there's like a back. It's almost like a booth, but kind of a room. And we had a meeting back there because we we're Separation Sunday. The second record was going to come out, and we wanted to. We'd booked the Bowery Ballroom for the record release, and I was like, you know. Guys, we have to like get, we have to ask for huge guest lists. We have to get everyone from our work to come. It's going to look terrible. Like we've sold out the Mercury Lounge, but that's the Bowery Ballroom's huge. This is, and then like the Village Voice came out. We were on the cover and like it sold out that day. And I was like, I went from freaking out that no one was going to come to like turning people away at the guest list. Yeah, it's like <laughs> saying like you can't be on the guest list anymore. Um, I mean, that was a really exciting time. Um, you know, we did some pretty cool, you know, also did the, the Australia tour with Les Savi Fav, which was spectacular. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I want to bring up now that I think about it, we're going to do Newmeyer's Roof uh, today on the uh, show. That's a song about being on Chris Newmeyer's Roof on 9-11. Were you with us? I was not. I was on my own roof. Okay. We went to Chris Newmeyer's Roof, who was my boss at the time. And we're watching the towers go down, um, and we didn't know what to do. Um, so we got—I mean, we didn't know what we sh- how we should feel. So we got a bunch of beer. Yeah. And I, you know, I probably drank eight beers that day, and it seems wildly inappropriate. But at the same time, I didn't know what else to do with myself. I remember someone put it that someone tried to kill you that day. Uh, the, what? The 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 attack on nine eleven on the towers in New York. Being yeah. So close to it that someone tried to kill you that day. Right, right. So you survived. Others didn't. And but I think that really messes with your with your system. Yeah. You know, your and, well, there's I mean, literally the physicalness of <laughs> I mean I went I would go running. I lived in Borham Hill at the time and I would run in the morning down to the promenade and back and just the the physical presence of the towers being missing was was a very strange thing. Now I'd only been in New York a year at that point, but right. uh, but still there was there was something there. But I don't know that you know. 
it's funny. I've been doing some of this talking about the Hold Steady with for these podcasts we've been doing for the reissues that just came out on French Kiss. But it's like, you know, it's 15 years on and, the, and it, some of it runs together and trying to figure out, you know, who all was there, who all was that, who all was not. But um, it's been a pretty crazy run. I mean, you know, from from that 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 night hanging out with Joe Strummer, nineteen November 1999 to December 2016, a lot of things... A lot of things. Um, it's pretty spectacular to be in this room, and um, not to mention with Seth and Fred and everyone else. So it's truly bizarre. <laughs> truly bizarre. It's truly bizarre. <laughs> And so this one we'd call White Tiger Worst park at a body The holiday guy couldn't make change and The parking lot scene still existed But not without problems I came back to St. Paul And things had progressed and got strange Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn, and you've been listening to Craig Finn and Sid Butler on the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Check out our past episodes featuring Craig, his talk with Seth Meyers on the TalkHouse Film Podcast, and his leading the fan Q&A during a live chat between the replacements Tommy Stinson and Wayne Kramer of the MC5. Subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes for upcoming episodes like TalkHouse Music's conversation between Joy Division and New Order's Peter Hook and the Smith's Andy Rourke and TalkHouse Films' fantastic chat between Chappelle's show's Neil Brennan and Frontline's Michael Kirk. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. Till next time. Fish shakes water, but licenses, they get revoked.